and it's a really valuable way of, of looking at the world. If you can comp- put the two together, like I say, that, that sort of methodical structural way of thinking that a classic CPG training gives you with the good parts of you know, ship it or move fast and break thing type mentality, then I think you have a very, a very interesting way of looking at the world. Hey guys, how's everyone doing? Welcome back to Beyond High Street. Today was awesome. I caught up with Steve Carlin. Steve and I have not spoken in almost 25 years. We graduated Miami together and spent quite a bit of time doing IFC chair work on campus at the Res together. It's been a long time since we did that, and it was great to catch up with him. He's crushed it uh, in the workforce. Uh, It was a fun conversation, listening to what he's been doing and how he's been able to weave all of his industries and companies together, different industries. Procter & Gamble, Energizer, Ubisoft, Facebook, SoftBank. Think about that. Soap, cosmetics, batteries, gaming, robotics. He goes into detail with each company and why he was there, why he chose to leave each job, and the impact that he had as part of it. I thought a lot of those conversations were really interesting. He touches on Miami and students at Miami and students really at college everywhere and using the time to learn how to learn. A simple statement, but something that is so true. We start the conversation with asking Steve, how does a geology major go to end up working in robotics years later? Hope you enjoy the pod. Thanks. I came out of Miami of Ohio with a degree in geology thinking I wanted to get a job that got me outdoors, and and that probably wasn't very well thought through. Uh, And I had uh, had explored biology and botany and all sorts of different... uh, majors and geology actually uh seemed seemed more interesting more fun there's some good folks in the department uh and then what i realized is uh i just didn't want to be a geologist so i went and worked nonprofit, coming out of miami for about three years which actually turned out to be a great experience because i managed budgets and teams but i, I recognized that nonprofit wasn't my end goal so i went back to emory to get my mba and came out of Emory, um, you know, it was interesting. I was worried I wasn't even going to get an internship. I was, I was afraid I was going to be the one kid that didn't get an internship uh, in the entire class because I had a degree in geology and I had a nonprofit background and all the companies coming to, to town were like, what is that? And luckily, Procter & Gamble flags on a lot of different things and leadership is one of them. And I had had some, some good leadership, um, you know, how I got to know you was some of the, the good leadership that I had uh, on Miami's campus. And so I ended up with an internship with one of the most coveted companies. Um, and so that was very fortuitous. That um, turned into roles within Procter & Gamble out on their Walmart team working uh, in sales and then coming back internally and doing sales planning type roles um, on health and beauty and then cosmetics, as you asked. So CoverGirl was one of their major brands, and that's what I was doing internally. Um, got a call from a headhunter to go uh, be a team leader for sales for Energizer and spent about five years at Energizer in a number of roles um, from sales to uh, strategy to brand management, you name it. Uh, And then got another recruiter call to come out to the West Coast to go work in video games. And I often get the question, oh, did you always want to get into video games and how'd you do it? And the answer is I wasn't even planning on getting into video games. Um, But what happened was when the Wii came out, uh, all of a sudden, retailers like Walmart and Target became more important to the industry because now mom and daughter were playing video games at a level that they never had been. And so they started to recognize the industry, I should say, started to recognize that classic CPG backgrounds like PNG and Energizer are actually really valuable. 
uh, to this industry. And what, what's fun is you can set up uh, good marketing plans, good sales plans, and then you kind of got to shoot from the hip after that because the product only stays on the shelf for about 90 days and then it's gone because the next titles come out. It's just like movies. Hmm. And so it was a lot of fun to kind of learn sort of the wild, wild west, the Silicon Valley way of doing things, moving fast and breaking things, but also still being able to use that that PNG sort of uh, methodical, structural way of, of viewing the world. Um, that uh, lasted another five years. Uh, let me, uh, let, Steve, let me, let me pause you there for a second before we go through, because I'm, I'm curious about two things in that, when you talked about a headhunter and then switching again out of Energizer. W- what was it that made you say, wow, there, what Energizer's offering is different from what I have at P&G, and then when you got into gaming after that? What, what was the, the one kind of calling card that you said, I need to make this move? Yeah. You know, headhunters come to you periodically with opportunities. And what you need to do, you know, to use your your vernacular, is you need to square that with what your career ambitions are. And so what I had been uh, taught at Procter was uh, your goal in life should be to get to a general manager role. Because at Procter & Gamble, that's a really big role. That's usually looking out over billion-dollar brands, if not even more than billion-dollar brands. Uh, and so that's that's a, a, an important sort of milestone or, or goal to be thinking about. And so when the recruiters would call from, say, Energizer, I had to compare that with, well, what do I have at, at Procter & Gamble? The Energizer role I ended up taking probably would have taken me another, say, eight or 10 years to get that same role at Procter, hmm. simply because the line is so long for those roles. They have such deep bench strength, such, such strong talent, Uh, that it just takes a long time to move up the organizational chart. So this was a way to kind of leapfrog by moving companies. And that's a strategic way to think about leaving a company is, can I get something more than I'd be able to get where I currently am by moving? Um, And so with both that call and the one into uh, Ubisoft, both were career advancing opportunities, leading teams, leading businesses, uh, leading bigger budgets. And that's, that's why I entertained them and ultimately took those roles. Okay. All right. So they and all three in the same. I assume you've switched geographies at this point. You're not in the same. It was P and G and Cincy, or where were you at P and G? You know, it's funny. We moved every even year from 2000 to 2008. Wow. Uh, so I went from Atlanta, where I was in grad school, to Fayetteville, Arkansas, and then from Fayetteville, Arkansas, to Baltimore, basically Towson, Maryland. From Towson to Cincinnati, not with Procter and Gamble, but that's when I moved with Energizer, which is kind of funny. Uh, then Cincinnati to St. Louis, and then St. Louis to San Francisco, and I've now been here since 2009-ish, 8-ish. So. And Fayetteville was working on – did P&G have – was that just working on the, the Walmart account down there, or what was Fayetteville? Yeah, Procter & Gamble uh, was the industry uh, sort of benchmark for all the CPG companies in so far as how to set up a team with a retailer and Walmart was the first one. And so they ended up with a team of when I was there about 200 people, I suspect it's bigger now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and we weren't in Bentville. Your listeners would notice that uh, Walmart's located in Bentville. We were actually just South in Fayetteville where the university of Arkansas is. And we just thought that that was a little bit better locale and we just drive the 40 minutes up the road to Bentonville. But I've always said, and we've got an office down there too, that some of the best people watching uh, in this country are at that Northwest Arkansas airport because the amount oh, of 
brands and celebrities that come through that airport on a daily basis and certainly on Saturday morning meetings uh, is as good as LAX or Kennedy or any other <laughs> big airport in this country. Uh, I agree, uh, because not only that, you have some sort of uh, locals and then you've got these massive executives. Uh, and so it's just this bizarre um, sort of community. We, we used to joke, though, people would move there uh, sort, of, <clears throat> sort of kicking and screaming like they didn't want to have to move to Arkansas. And then once they got there, they didn't want to leave because mm. it was a great sort of uh, town. And, a, you know, nobody was really from there. You're all very similar in backgrounds and in, in that you probably all work for massive Fortune 500 branding companies. And so you all have a lot in common. And so you made pretty quick friends. So it was a it was a great place to work. And by the way, for me, I mean, what an amazing opportunity I just fell into. They normally didn't hire new hires out onto that team. Normally, you had to have at least 10 years experience to get onto their largest client. And that was a $5 billion account at the time. So, you know, I was very fortunate to, to land in a, in a new hire role with veterans around me that were teaching me how to how to do the job. And that was, I mean, just such a boon to my um my resume and my career trajectory. And ha and what, what was it like moving every year? Eric and I have lived in the same house for 19 years. So <laughs> I, let alone moving cities, like we haven't moved a street. So how, how, how has that, how was that both family, but also just work balance and really just the move? You know, you, you, you have to figure out uh, what's the move going to do for you. So again, it's not unlike taking a recruiter call. You have to decide, all right, well, the role that you're offering me is not in this town. I have to move for it. Is it worth, you know, is the juice worth the squeeze, basically? Um, the, the act of moving isn't really that complicated. And back in those days, um, Proctor and what have you, they, they all had pretty good relocation packages, meaning I, I didn't really, it didn't cost me anything to do this except my time and sweat equity and, and setting up a new house uh, and, and my poor wife. Um, but, um, you know, we, we were in a situation where her, her, she was still working for a nonprofit and she could do that remotely so that they were very flexible in that. And then um, we, when we moved from Fayetteville to Baltimore, that's when we had our first child. So we had a kid in Baltimore, we had a kid in Cincinnati, we had a kid in St. Louis, and then we got a dog in, <laughs> in California. So we were just having kids that we moved West. Um, and, you know, they were young enough that it wasn't a big deal. Right now, they're, uh, they're, they're high school, middle school age. That, now it starts to become a little more difficult to, mm -hmm. to uproot and, and move. So we'll probably stay in the Bay Area for a while. But it, it, was, it was not that bad. It actually worked out well because we end up in the Bay Area. It's crazy expensive. But because we had bought and sold four houses prior to this, we had the equity we needed to get into a house here. So that was very fortunate as well. And, and how different was the Bay Area from... Uh, where the world is compared to some of those other interesting markets where you were too, you know, the, the Baltimore's Fayetteville's um, Cincinnati's, you know, it's like the Detroit's and Pittsburgh's and Cleveland's. And now all of a sudden you're going into the Bay area, a top three, four city uh, DMA in this country at the height of technology too. Well, so just from a, a moving standpoint, I'll tell you that I have a house now that is probably, let's see, a little little less than half the size of the house I had in Fayetteville, Arkansas, which is two of us. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is about, and the house in Arkansas was probably not quite one-tenth less expensive. <laughs> 
Yep. One tenth the price. There it is. Uh, just, just, just to explain <laughs> how crazy that is. Um, and then, you know, just being here, you know, the, the ethos is different in in uh, the Bay Area. You know, at, at uh, and you're you're familiar with this in in your world too. The the ethos at Procter and Energizer is look, you're launching new products, but for the most part, you've got the products you've got, and you need to. Um, get five or 10% growth out of the exact same thing. And batteries, literally the exact same thing. So there's not much change in batteries. And so it's not about moving fast and breaking things. It's about methodical inching forward through price and promotion and those kinds of things. Out here, everything in, in the tech world is, is ship it. It doesn't matter. You know, done is better than perfect. And so ship it. And, and it's a really valuable way of, of looking at the world. If you can comp- put the two together, like I say, that, that sort of methodical structural way of thinking that a classic CPG training gives you with the good parts of, you know, ship it or move fast and break thing type mentality, then I think you have a very, um, a very interesting way of looking at the world and a very valuable way of looking at the world. And so first job in the Bay Area was what? I was with Ubisoft. I was a senior director of marketing um, uh, for North America and really focused more on how you bring a brand alive within their key retailers. Uh, so at the time, everyone's, everyone's going to be listening to this going, yeah, but I just download my games. Why do I have to worry about the retailers? And you're right. But at the time, which was 19, or excuse me, 2008, like um, still about 90% of the sales are being done through box product coming off of Walmart, GameStop, you know, Target. Amazon even wasn't that big a deal at the time. And so uh, it was important to think through the millions of dollars we were spending in retail, printing corrugate cardboard with some character, you know, on the side and hanging things and posters and all the stuff that you had to put into the retail. You had to really think through what's the best way to do that. And by the way, you know, the added fun uh, versus say a a package good is um, pre-orders. So I don't know if you ever uh, pre-ordered a game uh, David, but uh, you know that's a proxy for demand, and and what a lot of what a lot of gamers don't understand is that's really important because every time you press a disc in the gaming world, you're paying either Nintendo, PlayStation, or Microsoft ten bucks. Hmm. So whether you ever sell that disc or not, you've already paid them ten bucks. So if you have some sort of proxy for demand, you know how many discs to press. That's really the value of the pre-order program. And so we, my team had to think through the pre-orders and how we were going to generate the most demand and interest in the games from when we announced it, say, in April or May until we launched it, say, in October. So that was a time period you had to market. And we launched about 70 games a year. But that's an interesting, so, interesting if I go back a couple minutes on that. So, A, you were, you're talking about uh, the launch at retail, but the demand, demand's not... At retail, demand is to the individual who uh, wants it and then asks retail for it, right? So you're, you're, you're doing both there. You're, you're figuring out the retail strategy with big box and whoever else you're ultimately using as the um, conduit to the end consumer. But you got to figure out a, a different type of strategy direct to consumer to make everyone rabid for that product. That's right. And so the brand teams would figure out how to, to uh, generate the awareness as, as brand teams do. And that's in large part from for the big games. Think, um, you know, Ubisoft had some pretty massive games like all the Tom Clancy franchise, Assassin's Creed, um, et cetera. You know, they would they would 
do maybe not quite Super Bowl ads, but you know they would they would have big ads on on Monday Night Football, et cetera. They'd they'd be spending tens and twenty millions of dollars, you know, with advertising. And so that was one way to do it. And then what then you had to do is say, okay, well, GameStop's going to have one sort of pre-order offer. Maybe it's another map in the game or a new skin for a character or certain kind of weapon or something like that. And then uh, Amazon wants one and or um, Target wants one, and we would we would negotiate with the retailer a little bit of, hey, we can give you this extra map, but that's a really big lift for the for the development team to 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 do. So if we give you that, you need to give us something in return. And often in GameStop's uh, case, they would put their own marketing dollars against our game, and so that's you don't normally see that. Like Walmart and Target, they don't put their own marketing dollars against Crest or Tide. Uh, they, they let you do what you need to do and they get a cut of it. But, but because GameStop was in the, in the business of generating foot traffic as well, they wanted you to come to the store and plunk your five bucks down for a pre-order with them because it, it almost not always, but the vast majority of people that do that also buy the game there. And so they're locking up their demand. It's interesting just thinking about it. So if there's a map or a skin that you're able to offer and multiple ones, cause you're offering them to different partners, who, where, where in the process is that in terms of the game development? And is that a developer going to the product and retail team to say, hey, we can build these 20 add-ons if you can sell them, or here are 20 different add-ons that we can build, or is it come from the other side that the retail team is coming down to brand and saying, hey, we need something unique for this customer, meaning meaning partner as customer. Yeah, one of the things uh, that I put into place and they're still doing to this day is bringing the retailers to, say, Montreal, where our big studio was, and getting them introduced to the executive directors and the executive producers of these games. So you're taking the way upstream group and introducing them to the way downstream group. And that way we're not playing phone tag in between and they can ask the questions of each other. And so uh, we tried to do that, say, a year out. Hmm. Uh, because to your point, it takes a long time to code all that stuff. Now, usually what happens is uh, the executive producer knows that they have to build such and such a, a, a length game and then they need to have additional material. And that additional material usually is what they pull from when they say, okay, you're getting this map or you're getting the skin. And so... Uh, the other thing that did, and you'll find this interesting, you know, if, uh, if you put an ad in say the circular for, for, um, target or Best Buy or what have you, the one that you grab when you walk into the store and you say what's on sale, mm -hmm. those decisions are made usually say 60 days out. And what's interesting is in the video game world, because the, the developers think of their game as art, not as a product, but as art they aren't going to ship it until they feel like the art is ready. And so it, there are many an occasion when, you know, 45 days from launch, 30 days from launch, they said, you know what, we're, we're going to shift it two weeks. Uh, we, we need two more weeks to, to get it done. Well, the problem with that downstream is if I've got a Toys R Us ad or I've got a Walmart or Target ad that's already printing, that's already locked, and I've already paid money for it, not only do I lose the money I paid for it, but they will find me because the product will show up in that circular but not be on the shelf. Hmm. And they don't like that. And they'll charge you, say, $100,000 as a, as a fine. 
And so I, I had to explain to the executive producers, and part of the reason we wanted to bring the retailers up to them was to explain this was, you need to understand the implications of your decision because your decision to move it two weeks just cost us $500,000. And, and so yeah, and so how, how many times did you get burned with that before you made that call in Montreal? Or were you able it to- was, Yeah, it was, I was there five years and, and it took me a year and a half to realize, hey, this is crazy. Like, what are we doing? I need to go up and explain this to them. And, and I also had to go to Paris. Our, we had studios in Paris as well and explain it to them uh, so they understood the downstream implications. But, but back to your original question, yeah, that was the benefit that we ended up getting. By having the, um, the, the game stops of the world go up to Montreal, see the game a year, year and a half out, and get to have a conversation with the executive producers, you end up giving them a little bit of ownership in it. Like, it's success now is in part because of them. And so that changes the dynamic of the negotiation as well. And so it's did, a bit did, of an yeah. old trick. What did the game, I mean, that happens in the, in the movie world of when you're a year out and people are reading scripts from a brand right. perspective, but there's no visual to that. So a year out in Montreal, what does the game actually look like that they are seeing? They can often um, show... Um, so the way that it works is you have to, as a gaming team, like the development team has to put together certain pieces and resources to then go show the executives what they're going to build and thus get the funding for it. And so you can show some of those assets. Those, those can be everything from here's an example of gameplay. Here's an example of the art that we're going to use and the aesthetics that we're going to use. Here's a, an example of the mechanics. So all of that already exists. And as you get to about, a, that's usually about a year and a half or two years out. And then as you get to a year out, you can even start to show levels. So they may not be fully polished, but you can start to show them what it looks like. Um, I remember seeing um, a Ghost Recon game that was literally still stick figures <laughs> moving around. But you understood that, that you were playing the game. It's just there was no artwork on it. There was, there was no polish. It was all just the stick figures moving around. Absolutely. But that's, um, that, they can show all of that and give you a sense. And then they can have a discussion about, well, so who's interested in this? Well, we, we've done our uh, consumer studies, and the people that are interested in this kind of game are most similar to, say, the Call of Duty player or the you know, Final Fantasy player or the, you know, the Madden players. And so you can start to connect the dots in their minds of who you're going after and thus what the size of the game's potential is. Now, the funny part is it's not like you've launched bar soap in the past and you're launching a new kind of bar soap. And so you know exactly who's, who's going to buy it. And here it's a little different because the aesthetic is everything. The, the storyline, the gameplay, the artwork, all of that impacts who buys it and also what else you're going against. So if you launch the same week as Call of Duty, you know, you're going to be in trouble. Like, there's just only so many dollars in the wallet. And so uh, you have to be thoughtful about when you're going to launch it, too. And so there's this sort of tacit, I'd, I'd almost use the word collusion out in the world, uh, when, like, you want to announce your games getting launched as early as you can because that sort of locks up the week if it's a big hitter. And there's about, you know, maybe five or ten big hitters every year. And if you're a smaller game, which I mentioned to you, we launched about 70 games a year, so if five of them are big games, that means the rest of them are not as big a game. You want to avoid Call of Duty and Red Dead Redemption and Grand Theft Auto. And those, those are the ones that just suck the whole, the whole <laughs> money out of the entire industry. Yeah. So, so get me up to speed. You, you left Ubisoft after doing that for a while. And then the, the last 10 years, or the last five to 10 years in the Bay Area. 
Yeah, so I left uh, Ubisoft um, primarily because it's a family-run company. Unfortunately, there's just nowhere left to go. Uh, I was having a blast there, but there's an opportunity with Facebook to be the global head of strategy for gaming. Uh, and that's a big, big business for, for Facebook. At the time, it was the largest of the verticals that they earned money from. Uh, and there's two facets to it. There's the ads revenue side, meaning the things you see in your news feed that, that make you click on it and it takes you to the, to the app store and you can download a game directly from the app store. Um, and then there's the platform side. And so this role was helping a 90-person global team understand the industry as an industry veteran, some of the issues that they face in the industry, and therefore what products or services or additional tweaks to the current products we should put in order to meet the needs of the industry. And then I also helped identify new areas. So, for example, you know, uh, you might be familiar with the fact that um, online uh, sports betting is now legal in the United States. When I was at Facebook, it wasn't, um, but uh, lotteries were and horse racing was. And the games team hadn't thought about how do you advertise for lotteries. And so there's this whole new market out there that we could go after um, and and explore getting more revenue from. So I, I, I was helping them understand by region what the opportunities were. I was meeting with global uh, gaming companies, everything from esports uh, to mobile games to console games around the globe, um, and that was that was a blast. Um, you know, Facebook is Facebook. There are a few few things that um, um, were problematic in its growth and what have you that made it uh, a little untenable to stay there. And so I left there in order to uh, end up at SoftBank Robotics. Because that's what you do. You go from bar soap to robotics. Um, and, you know, don't I know it. Well, it's, in but, it's interesting as you talk through all of this. I mean, it, it seems that, and you, you said it earlier about how do you get a job from being a geologist or geology major in nonprofit to P&G and it was the leadership trend. I mean, all of these jobs you're talking about seems to me uh, an understanding of um, – sales and marketing channels, business plans, leadership, because they're not direct in a vertical route of uh, the industry that you're in and certainly totally different audiences of bar soaps and cosmetics and batteries to the gaming community. That's right. And, and I, think, I, I think the way to think about it is, again, I was told that a general manager was the, was the role to get into. And, and if you stop and think about what that means, because it means different things in different places, what it means is leading a business, running a business, you know, steering the ship and not rowing the boat. And in order to do that, my way of thinking was, well, then you want to have as many experiences across the commercial landscape and you know, literally doing the roles as you can so that when you're sitting in that chair leading the business, you understand how all those pieces fit together. So what you really see if you look through my resume is here's a guy that's had frontline sales and, and held the bag, um, you know, and P&L outselling products. He's supported sales. He's done strategy. He's done brand management. He's done project management. He's led teams. He's led global teams. So now you get to SoftBank Robotics and that's the role I'm in. And I, I was leading, um, you know, what became a 70 person team that I had to kind of start up. It was actually great because it was a bit of a startup as well. Even though we all think of SoftBank as this massive company, this was a, 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 a purchase of a French robotics company and we changed the name to SoftBank Robotics and they had a small team in Boston but they wanted a team in, on the west coast so I had to build out all the facets of a business from HR to accounting and finance to legal to sales to marketing to engineering 
um, and everything in between. And that was fascinating. And I could only do that because of the career paths I had and understanding how all these things fit together and therefore which things you should put first. So for example, you know, as a, as a bit of a startup, that meant our budget wasn't big, which means I didn't have Ubisoft or Procter & Gamble sized marketing budgets. And so the first thing we started on was public relations because you can, you can get a lot of, it, of free advertising through editorial coverage by doing things like this, podcasts. So I went on the Nerdist podcast and I you know, sat down for Techonomy's podcast and I um, was interviewed by basically every major North American publication there was over the course of three years. And that was all in lieu of spending dollars to be splashy and putting out TV ads and what have you. But, but to know that you had to you had to understand the value of PR versus the value of a big marketing budget. And so back to your question, the, the, real, the real theme through the whole thing is, what do you need to know in order to be a general manager or a leader of a business? And that's not for, for everybody, but I think the lesson out of that is, well, if you can, try to think through what you want to be when you grow up, quote unquote, and, uh, and try to set your, your career path towards that goal. And do you think, uh, do you think P&G taught you that being a general manager is where you wanted to go or even when you were at Miami and thinking geology and wanting to be in the outdoor space was the general manager philosophy uh, or, or were you thinking that did you that you had the understanding would ever want to lead a business in whatever industry it would be in I think there's two things one um, if you've ever done Myers-Briggs uh, yeah you know, the, the leadership assessment, I come out an ENTJ and that's called a field marshal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if you read the description of field marshal, it's actually pretty funny. One, one of the lines in it is, this is a person who often finds themselves in a leadership role and doesn't necessarily know how he got there. <laughs> and I think that's actually really fitting from my, my days at Miami, um, you know, leading a fraternity, leading, um, uh, different, different aspects of, of, of um, the, the, campus life, uh, I didn't always know how I got there. People just kind of looked at me and said, well, you should, you should be president of that or you should. And and I think that's, that's right. And so then once you've kind of come to grips with, oh, actually, I kind of like being a leader that starts to form, formulate your mind. Well, then if I like leading things, what do I need to do if my chosen profession is business to lead, you know, a brand, a business, what have you. And, and that's how I kind of came to this notion of, oh, well, maybe if I can, put all the pieces together, um, then it would, it would put me in a better position to go be chosen to lead some of these businesses. So that, that was the thinking. Mm. And is there an industry, uh, or a type of business that you would want to lead next or be a general manager of next? Well, that is the $64,000 question that I'm working through right now. Um, having just left SoftBank Robotics about three weeks ago, um, there's uh, there's certainly opportunities to do my own thing, start my own companies, um, and I have some ideas around uh, what technologies might be uh, something I could build around. Um, and there's also um, several companies that I've uh, already been talking to around leading their businesses. That and most of them are very small, uh, but that makes sense. You know, you don't you don't get to go from leading a, a startup like a SoftBank Robotics to being the CEO of General Motors. Um, not that I would ever want to do that anyway, but, um, it, but it forced another move. It would force another move back to Detroit. I, I went to high school in Detroit, so I don't, 
don't know if I want to do that again. But at any rate, you know, uh, just kind of looking through, um, taking a bit of a one, a break to uh, just being thoughtful about, okay, well, what what of the roles I've had did I really enjoy? Mm. What aspects of them? Um, you know, what kinds of products am, am I passionate about? Do I find interesting? You, know, you mentioned movies. We've talked about video games. So that's entertainment broadly. You know, would it be getting back into entertainment? Um, you know, one of the issues I had with Facebook was at the end of the day, you're selling advertising. And that's that, that actually ends up being a little bit uh, painful. And so, you know, I know that whether it's a Google or a Facebook or, you know, those kinds of uh, social networks, that's ultimately what powers them. So I don't know if I want to get back into things like that. But if you could find a, a physical product that also has the technology background, that's probably a sweet spot for me. And and to the 21-year-old who's got a few more months walking uh, up and down High Street and in about to enjoy the greatest senior second semester ever as spring <laughs> rolls in and to the one who's going to be who's the geology major and thinking about the outdoors but could end up anywhere what do you say to those guys look college is about learning how to learn um i think it's it's a little bit folly to think that whatever you chose as your major is going to define what your career is um you know, you will you will change your passions over the course of your of your life. So that's okay. You know, I think um, it, it's better if you can sort of sketch out a plan for your career. But even if you can't, be thoughtful about well, then what at least puts you in the right position. One, pick a part of the country you actually want to live in because that's where those you know, the jobs will will be there. Uh, you know, one piece of advice I got for grad school was, look, apply to the top grad schools. If you don't get in, at least pick a grad school that's going to be in a place you want to live. And because recruiters will come to the school for the jobs that are in that, that region. So that's right. And I think, um, you know, don't, don't stress too, too much about uh, exactly what the right role is. If you say, I really want to get into gaming, great. Go apply to all the gaming companies. If you, if if you really want to get into gaming and you can't get a job within gaming, then think about, well, what, what's the skill set that the gaming companies want? Is it brands? Is it sales? Is it, what is it? And go see if you can get that experience and reapply three, four five years later. That's fine too. I, I think, you know, it's too much pressure to think, Oh my God, I've got to have it all figured out. You don't try to sketch some things out. And then the last piece, and this is what I tell, you know, I, I have the great fortune of working with the, um, the interactive media studies program for Miami comes out to San Francisco and I've had, uh, geez, probably a dozen interns uh, work with me over the last couple of years at, at my companies. And then I get to speak to the whole group usually uh, at one point. And, and the one thing I always tell them, and I know you would agree with this because we're doing this very podcast is your network is everything. So the last three jobs I've gotten have been because of my network. And so at very least, what you should be thinking about over this last semester while you're walking up and down High Street is, who do I know at Miami and how am I going to stay in touch with them over the course of my entire career? Because they are going to go places. Today, I'm going to have lunch with a, an old dear friend of mine uh, who's now the CMO at Uber. And I would have no business having a conversation with her otherwise, except that we went to Miami together. And so that, that's going to be a lot of fun for me, but it's, it's going to also help me uh, as I look for my next uh, gig. And my network is, is everything, and that's advice I would give to any student that's listening to this. Wow. Thanks, Steve. That was fun. I can't believe it's been 20-plus years since we caught up. Uh, we will do that again real soon. But I really appreciate you taking a few minutes with me today, Steve. 
That was informative. Uh, he is smart, articulate, well thought out. I really like the way he explained why he went to those jobs, why he left the jobs, uh, and what it took to win at each place. There will be no shortage of companies calling him to have him be the general manager at the next spot. Thanks, guys, for listening. Hope you have a great week. Please share with friends and colleagues and all Miamians. See you at Skippers. Skippers.